0: Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the way that you love us and care for us and provide for us. We thank you, Father, for the way that you have spoken to us in a way that we can understand. When we read the scripture, when we look and see the unified story all throughout of what it is that you are doing in Jesus Christ, it is he whom we long to see. It is he whom we need to see and to understand. And we pray, Lord, that as we Feel different questions and look at different aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Give us insight to be able to understand, not simply so that we learn more, but so that indeed we love more and are able to be uh, better lovers of you and of one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks. You are the ones who get to set the agenda. Coffee and questions is open. I got my board. I've got a pen. Ready to go. What do we got? Connor. Okay, people doing what on the internet? Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, I work on that, yeah, yes, and so, um, not there yet, I'm not there, once I can, we'll start having healing services. Um, okay, so I think what you're really asking, or what I'm going to move it into, so it may be uh, something is, do the gifts of healing, which we very clearly see in the New Testament era, do the gifts of healing continue? Because, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about deliverance or something of that nature. So let me see if I can answer that question. If we look at the fact that God has been working consistently with one plan, it is to bring the Messiah and the Messiah in that moment to deliver us by a substitutionary life and a substitutionary death, right? If that's the case, then we can look at the whole of, uh, of the story and see that it's one story. So God has a purpose. It, I say this because people sit there and say, "Well, we have prophets like Elijah and Elisha, and those—that's a time of miracles as well, at least some, and that kind of thing. Uh, we have with Moses uh, a slew of miracles and so on. And if you're not careful and you don't look, you you fail to see that there's a pattern that's going on there. It's not just in this era or that era or whatever. And the pattern is very simply this: all throughout Scripture. You follow a pattern of word and deed. And believe it or not, to answer the question for today, let's go back to 1446 B.C. In 1446 B.C., um, we have the Exodus, right? So here comes God, and he says to, um, through Moses, to Egypt, let my people go, in short. And Pharaoh, who's the most powerful person on the planet, says, (laughs) what, some shepherd dude just walked out of the desert? And tells me to let these people who are our slave force, you know, and all that, to let them go. Yeah, right. So you have God's word, but then you have the different plagues and different uh, miracles that follow after. All meant to enforce what God had said. And you begin to see that pattern. It's easy to, if if God just acts and there's no explanation, you don't know what happened, right? Right if a hailstorm had come and killed all the you know the crop and destroyed all the crops and you know did all that and killed cattle and all that and there was no revelation regarding what god had done you would just say it's like the other day when crops were killed and uh, crops were killed when hail came and you know trees were knocked down and whatever whatever if god just speaks and there's no action then it's literally just talking right so what we see is throughout redemptive history and redemptive history starts at the fall, use that little arrow for that, all the way through Christ, right? And it's going to continue until he returns. I guess I shouldn't use two arrows, but okay. You know, you've got the fall, time of Christ, and then his return. This is all redemptive history. And what you see are these moments of punctuation where word and deed always go together. And when there's new revelation, it's followed by these deeds. And they, they seem to always cluster together. So when we get to this, the coming of Christ, it's followed by a flurry of new revelation. The, uh, the apostles, you know, write the letters of the New Testament, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The canon comes to a close. They even say, we're now going into, Paul says in First Timothy Second Timothy and Titus, we're now shifting into a more uh, continual mode of pastors and teachers continuing with what we've what's been revealed. That's why there's so much emphasis in the pastoral epistles on maintaining the word, preaching the word, and so on. But there's not any new revelation until the return. So we would not expect then to be to see these these new deeds happening beyond that period that's why you have all these deeds clustered in those moments you know people in israel it wasn't like they were constantly seeing miracles all the time you know they didn't just wake up one morning and just say i think i'm going to levitate my way onto the super stall to you know to the market stall out there and buy my vegetables and you know no i mean you know they were even amazed some of them didn't even believe it you know when things happened because it was such a rare thing so i don't know if that helps By looking at this, it helps us to evaluate, you know, we're somewhere in between here. When somebody makes the claim that he has healing powers or other kind of um, miraculous powers, uh, we would then argue, then where's the new revelation? And, of course, there are some folks who talk about having word of the Spirit and all this other stuff and and do think that they're continuing revelation. But then very clearly the Scripture says that that's not the case. At The very end of Revelation says that there won 't be any new revelation until the return of Christ, so that 's the easiest way to dismiss it now you might still i'm not answered your, I might not still have answered your question you might be asking me what 's going on and, and how that happens and I think the best answer to that is to watch the second movie of Fletch, and if you do that you 'll have your answer um, the short of it is. So let's 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 deal with something here though. I think it's an important question. Can God act in ways that are extraordinary today? Right. We talk about ordinary providence and extraordinary providence. Providence, God superintending all things. Can he sometimes do that? Could somebody have cancer and the doctors look and say, We don't know how, it just kind of disappeared. Nothing that we did did that, and there's nothing that shows. Can that happen? It does happen. And can we be praying for that? Absolutely. When we see, you know, somebody who's in need of something, or, you know, we're sitting there and we're wondering, can we find the survivors of the Titan submersible? And, you know, sadly, that didn't turn out to be the case, but we're all, you know, we were all praying, let's hope these folks are found a lot. Can those things happen? They do, and they sometimes uh, do happen. So, but it's not that I myself am empowered to do that. Uh, that has not been the case since the time of the apostles. I suspect a lot of that stuff is fake, Um I'm not going to try to guess exactly, you know, all that's going on there. But, but when people do a report something happened, not necessarily in those settings, um, God can do things. But, yeah, it wouldn't be because I went in there and said, you know, out, i cast you out or whatever. It's, we pray, we ask the Lord to do something, and if he chooses to respond, he does. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Any, uh, is that good? Others that I don't know that got anybody else going. Okay. Look at that. We still have time for more questions. Either that or my watch stopped. <laughs> All right. Other questions? Matt. You, oh, yeah. Why you say it, and what sure. The question is whether I have time. Okay. You know, what's best to do for this? Uh, go ahead and open your, your hymnal to page A45. It's just so much easier if we're looking at it so let's talk about the Apostles Creed who wrote the Apostles Creed not the Apostles okay so why is it called the Apostles Creed because it what they talk. ah it summarizes the apostolic faith and the apostolic faith when we talk about you know when you use language like that at first you know you hear apost- apostolic faith and you think of two things that sounds very Roman Catholic and so again Protestants overreact sometimes to whenever they hear anything Look, Catholics baptize, they preach, (laughs) they do a lot of things that, you know, we do, and and so we don't want to overreact. Pentecostals now also talk a lot about the apostolic this and apostles and all that stuff. We shouldn't be scared of the word. It just simply means, uh, you know, when Paul talks about our foundation of our knowledge is built on that of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone, it's this idea that what they taught, right, here it is. Here's that apostolic foundation. It is this that we, that we stick to. That's my authority. It's your authority. It's the church's authority. So that's the, the driving force there. Okay, so in, it started in the 2nd century, but it wasn't really finalized until the 3rd century. So in the 3rd century, they put together what we today call the Apostles' Creed, meaning the apostolic confession. You know, these are the basics. And it's what um, people when, um, like t- today we're going to receive some new members during the service. Uh, in the old days, um, when you were preparing to, uh, to become a communing member who can partake, everybody can come to the worship service, but when they came to the Lord's Supper, since the Lord's Supper has traditionally been something where we guard against and only has to be believers, and Paul warns us about in 1 Corinthians 11, that you have to come with a discerning mind, understanding what's happening, the folks who were in training, they were called catechumens, which is to mean they're those who are being catechized. They weren't allowed in. They were actually kicked out of that part at that point. And then those who were communing members would partake of the Lord's Supper. The way that you became a communing member is after your training and so on is you would recite the Apostles' Creed. That would you would be able to affirm these are the things that that I believe, and then you were you were allowed in. This is why we actually use the Apostles' Creed where we do it in our service. It's right before the Lord's Supper, and it serves as that entry for all of us to sit there and say, this is what I believe as I go, in." So that's the origin or the provenance of the Apostles' Creed. The reason I'm spending all that time is to show you that while it summarizes biblical teaching, it is not Scripture. Now, I know that sounds like you know, something that we all know, but we've, we, we use it so often that we just need to be reminded. It's not Scripture. It was written by these guys as a theological summary. It was originally written in Greek, and this is why it matters. Originally written in Greek, because when we get to that fun little section, right? So look at, uh, you know, just a little bit before, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So now we've moved from the Father to the Son, later we'll do the Spirit, right? The conception by the Holy Spirit, so very important, as you remember from Christmas time. Born of the Virgin Mary, very important then this very important part he suffered under pontius pilate the idea that he went through our sufferings is there was crucified died and was buried we've got to understand that line before we can understand the next line uh what they're trying to do there is make very clear he had a death it was a shameful death the death of a criminal because again he stands in our in our place right as criminals against god he takes our place He not only was crucified, it was an effective crucifixion. He's dead. And he was buried. And this is an important thing that you see in the scriptures a number of times. He really was under the power of death. And Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses. He wants to highlight this idea that he died, that he was crucified, he died, he was buried, remaining under the power of death for for a time. And so so that wants to be clear. Now, hang on to he descended into hell. Skip that. And then, of course, you have the resurrection. So what does this he descended into hell mean? Well, this has been um, translated. Uh, okay, so let's go back. So it was written in Greek because the original language of that time was not Latin Latin was the the language of the Romans, but it's not the language that the Romans used day to day. (gasps) What? That's true. The the Romans were the best copyists in the world. They copied everything. And they perfected it. They were organizers, but they were not creators, generally speaking. So they took the Greek-speaking world and they organized it into all the different structures and everything. They kept... Greek. Greek was the language that people used for commerce and for business and for everything else. Latin was their local language. It wasn't later, believe it or not, until the church began taking over, uh, which is a story for another day, that Latin became the uh, the lingua franca. Uh, and by the way, the very term lingua franca just means the French language because when that uh, uh, Latin term was coined, French was used as the diplomatic and, and commercial language. Today, the lingua franca is English, you know, pretty much all are in. And, you know, at the rate we're going in uh, 100 years, everybody will be speaking Chinese or something, you know. Um, it, it happens, despite whatever we might think, empires and, you know, and so on. So different languages and so on. So it was originally written in Greek, and it wasn't until about the 5th century, uh, sometime in the 400s, that it was translated into Latin... And the word that they used for he descended into hell was improperly was, uh, was the word infernus, inferno, right? We get that word from that, hell. But the word before was the word that simply meant the grave or the, the period of death. Um, so you have language, for example, in the Old Testament if you read the Psalms, it talks very often about descending into Sheol, right? That's used a lot. And there's a question of what is Sheol? And if it's not explained to you, uh, you might think it's hell, which is what happened here. So let me go back a step and say, with, with it saying he descended into hell, there's been various um, uh, uh, interpretation or, or attempts to explain it. So one of those is that Jesus literally went into hell, and there he suffered and, and so on and so on. And, uh, and, and then in his resurrection, he escaped it. What's the problem with that? Say again? Where he says to tell us that it is finished. All the suffering happened on the cross. Okay, let's let that aside. So then some other people say, well, we're going to look at what First Peter says. And, um, and, and so what it means is he went down to hell to declare his victory, right? So he goes down there and he declares his victory and he makes it known and he shows up and, and, and this is where Peter's talking about he preaches um, uh, to the spirits and so on. And he, what do you think might be the problem with that? This is happening between his death and between his resurrection, yeah, victory is not fully there. I mean, he's, he's paid off sin, but we, we haven't shown that death has been conquered. So let's set that aside, right? Calvin comes along and gives the, the view, he didn't invent it, but he wrote it down, that most people today who, who are thinking about what he descended into hell might make how, we, how to make, how to say that in a way that makes sense, says that what it means that he took upon himself the full wrath of God while he was on the cross. Is that true? It is true. And it's the only way to read he descended into hell in any sort of meaningful way. But it's still not what they wrote. And this is why I'm saying it's so important to recognize this was not scripture. If this were scripture, we'd have to argue and say, well, you know, there there can't be any mistakes but there were mistakes made in putting this together. Uh, the, the, he descended into hell part, meaning that Calvin, uh, uh, meaning, like Calvin said, that Christ took upon himself the full wrath of God. While that is a true statement, it's an awfully strange way of saying that he descended. Plus, it's out of order. It should have been put before he, was, before he died and was buried. You see, it, it doesn't quite make sense. It's the best if you're going to hold to the hell reading, because again, it's a uh, it's a summary. Uh, it's not an actual scripture, so you can change certain things in there if you wanted to, uh, if you think that the summary can change, just like our Westminster Confession has been changed. But I think the best way to read it is to go back to the Greek language and to see it, just like the word Sheol, when David talks about in the Psalms, my soul will go down to Sheol or something. Sometimes like the NIV translates that, the grave, but it's that's, that's close. It's not hell. You're certainly not talking about believers going down into into hell. Uh, what he, and, and, and in one technical sense, it's the grave. But when we think of our bodies being placed in the ground, we tend to think of ourselves as being somewhere else, even though our bodies are us and a part of us, and they'll be raised with us in the resurrection. What it really has uh, the word "sheol" simply means the state of death. And if you understand that, then when you begin to read the Psalms that talk about it, and he says, you can't do anything, you won't be able to do, you know, you can't, I won't be able to praise anymore, I won't be able to worship you anymore, because I'll be in that state of death. It's a recognition of the fact that we live in a fallen world. It's a recognition that there really is a cessation of earthly life the the hebrews the israelites were very cognizant of the real world they weren't uh you know like you know oh we're gonna die we're gonna be flipping around in our little wings and all this other kind of you know made up stuff that has uh, uh, been a been a factor here in, in the modern world they're like you're dead and that means you're not out here doing stuff you're not going to birthday parties you're not driving you know your fast cars it i mean it. you're not watching you know um I was going to say Dynasty. Nobody watches Dynasty. That was like in the 80s. Whatever. You know, you're not watching this stuff. You're not doing it. You're, you're done. That does not mean that they don't believe in the resurrection. It does not believe they don't mean in an afterlife. But it's, it's, it, it's looking at the reality of you are in a state of death. And there's a lot of people today in Hebrew thinking they are in Sheol. They're not here. They're not talking. And sooner or later, you and I will join them. And our hope to escape, and that is is the resurrection. So this is what it's, uh, sorry, I thought I had it up there. So this is what we're saying when we look at this. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He truly entered into the state of death for a while before his resurrection. That's what the Greeks meant when they wrote it. Once the Latin guys, Jerome and those guys, changed it to infernus, so we had to come up with trying to explain hell but it actually isn't what they originally wrote. Rod, you want to follow up on that? No, absolutely, absolutely. And 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 the Israelites were were realists, you know, and they were basically saying this there is a, a time of cessation of this life as we know it, and that's that's what um, uh, David is getting at. I'm entering into that. Sheol is that. So. When uh, when guys go through their ordination exams, either as elders or as ministers at the presbytery level, they often get asked this question, and they're supposed to say, well, Calvin said that it just means that we took upon ourselves the... Um, uh, I took upon. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God. And that is a correct um, statement. Jesus did on the cross, took the full penalty that you and I so richly deserve, and that's why uh, we don't have to partake of it. But in church history, if you look, that's not what they actually wrote. So it is what's written and so uh, we roll with that and you ask me what it means that Jesus suffered hell I'll say well he suffered hell on the cross but if we want to really try to explain why it's positioned to where it's positioned and the descent and, and so on yeah then we've got to look at what it was originally uh, why am I looking you didn't ask the question yeah sorry now I've been picking on poor Connor so Matt yeah but that, that's where it's coming from so does that make sense? For the same reason that we don't fix Psalm 23, the end, right? I will dwell in the house of the Lord, you all memorize it, but it's not what it says. I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, which on an earthly perspective of this side of Sheol is the same, thing, the same thing as saying, well, forever as long as I'm living, But it kind of takes away this whole idea, you know, when you're supposed to be reading this to somebody who's dying and so on. They want to hear, I'm going to continue on in the house of the Lord, which, of course, they will. But then the hope is in the resurrection. So you can actually preach that and point people to the hope that we have that the good shepherd is going to shepherd our souls all the way through death, even to that point. Right. So um, I I just say that because there's a lot of things. uh, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. And what do we think it means? And I'll see you, April. We think it means for God so loved the world, right? Like so very much loved the world. But it's not. It's Jacobean English where the word so means thus, in this way. And We still say that when we say, do it like so. When we, when we say, you know, here's how you tie your shoes. You're talking to your two-year-old. Do it like so, in this manner. For God loved the world in this manner that he gave his only begotten son. Why don't we translate it? Uh, why don't we properly change it? Because, yeah, um, sales. It's commercial. I mean, I, I literally have had translators of the Bible tell me, uh, that one of the guys that was doing the New Living Translation, the first edition, was just telling me, yeah, I want to change it, but they won't let us. You know, it's just this. Because that's the first thing people turn to. (gasps) It doesn't say. It's a terrible translation. And then they don't buy it. And it's actually a better translation. So, Okay, very last one, April. I I think, yeah, you know, so I've got to be kind. Um, Some of the mainline churches don't, uh, had they removed it for these reasons, right? And by the way, it was the very last line added as they worked through the Apostles' Creed, went through several revisions, which again is okay. It's not Scripture. It's just guys sitting around, sitting there and saying, you know, let's let's try to think through what Scripture says. And it was the the, the last section that was added. So if some people sit there and say, you know, it's just problematic. We don't know what to do with it. Let's chuck it. I suspect most mainline uh, denominations have wanted to do away with anything that has to do with hell. They want to pretend it doesn't exist. Because for them... Uh, god is a, a a well he's the simpsons god right he he's he's a grandfather in the sky who's who's so glad that you came over to see him and he's just going to hug you and accept you and all this other stuff and and there's no basis for for that for god to love us that way because we're sinful so oh, oh he's just nice he'll forgive well there's no basis for him to forgive but they've wanted to to excise all um, references, you know, uh, if you look at the, the revised common lectionary and as it reads through, it skips things. Like when Jesus talks about hell, it skips it. Just literally doesn't, is not in the reading. And it says nobody brings a Bible to a, to a mainline church. And what they do is they print it. You would never know. You know, you can go to a Roman church and they have the Missal and it's printed as there uh, in, a, in a Methodist church or a Presbyterian USA or Episcopal. They'll print it in the bulletin. So you never read your own Bible and you don't realize, oh, they've removed all the, I mean, nobody talked about hell more than Jesus. I suspect that's probably the reason, not because somebody thoughtfully thought through. I mean, most of those guys, yeah, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop right there. Take it. This lit. This has got to be it because we're past our time. So, uh, yes, it's wrong. Okay. And we can expand on that next week if we want. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll just simply say this. It seems like every 15 years, not quite every 10, every 15 years, something new comes through. And it's our job to just, you know, it's like, and and they make it so easy. It's like T-ball, you know, boom. But but the reason they can get away with it is very simple. We don't read our Bibles. If you read your Bibles, most of this stuff falls away. So this is the latest flavor of the month. Um, And what happens is they always capture a whole bunch of people that got swept up. It seems really exciting. Uh, we don't know enough to, to, to see the hook that they are hooking us with. And by the time that the church responds and is boom, 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 hitting against it, we'll set it aside, but by then it's captured a whole bunch of people, and that seems to happen. Russ, you wanted to follow up on that? So that that almost sounds, if you, if you just use different words, uh, going back to another one of these movements, that sounds like how can you have your best life now? It, it's all the same, to just grab a hold of it. Yeah. All right, guys, we need to quit. Let me go ahead and pray, and um, we'll get ready for worship. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that Jesus Christ did live a perfect life that none of us here is capable of living. That's our only hope. Our righteousness comes from him, not from ourselves and nothing that we will ever do. And how thankful we are that when he died on the cross, he paid the debt that we owe you. Uh, The book of Colossians makes very clear. and Paul says... That that debt was literally nailed, maybe not literally, metaphorically nailed to the cross, but literally was paid. And Jesus even says, it is finished, using that commercial term for when a debt is paid. How thankful we are, Father, that he did experience everything that we've experienced. uh, The suffering, uh, the heartache, uh, uh, and death. He experienced being under the power of death for a while. Uh, and yet, the only difference was he was without sin, making him the perfect uh, lamb, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you because that is our hope. And his resurrection from the dead guarantees that we ourselves, as Paul says in First Corinthians 15, first him and then us, guarantees that we too will escape Sheol on that great day. Father, may that be what fuels us in our day-to-day living. May we be able to see beyond Uh, these promises that um, the NAR and others will make about how we can have our best life now. Uh, In one sense, they're absolutely true. We have our best life now because we have Christ now. Uh, But like Christ, we await um, the resurrection to see so many of those things uh, with our eyes and not just with the eyes of faith. Until then, grant us stronger faith, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.